Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be the first to be notified of new episodes. And go and leave a rating and review and share this podcast with your friends and network. Previous guests on the show have included Michael Frost, Neil Cole, and Craig Westoff. You could go back and listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Brian Zond. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian is the author of several books, including When Everything's on Fire, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, and more. Brian and I have an amazing conversation around the radical love of Jesus, and we touch on deconstruction, love casting out fear, unity in the body, Dostoevsky, Lord of the Rings, and more. Enjoy the conversation. Here's Brian. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you, so thank you so much. Thank you, Joshua. Good to be with you. Yeah. You know, I'm going to start pretty broad. uh, So you could jump on in any part of your story you want. But what what of the beauty of Christ has really captured your imagination? Wow, what a question. Um, I just find everything about Jesus so attractive, so fascinating. That's the word I think I would use. Sometimes I describe my my initial personal encounter with Christ as becoming fascinated with Jesus. Hmm. It happened when I was a sophomore in high school. I was a teenager. I usually tell it by saying I just kind of overnight went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak (laughs) to the high school Jesus freak. But another Hmm. way of telling it is I just became completely fascinated by we can say yes the beauty of Christ the attractiveness yeah. of Christ that that there was no one else like Jesus he couldn't be compared to anyone else and so that's that was a long time ago I'm 63 now and I'm yeah. talking about something when I was 16 so <laughs> it's been a lifetime of just staying attracted to Jesus trying to understand mm. God as revealed in Christ yeah so what's uh, kept you kept you in it with the with the valleys and the mountains and the highs and the lows and everything in between you know, uh, yeah, there's there's mountains and valleys and everything in between. You're right about that. I, I don't know other than the encounter I had 
as a teenager, November 9th, 1974, <laughs> was so profound, so dramatic. You notice how the Apostle Paul is over and over and over again telling that story of what happened on the Damascus Road. It's the same with me. Now, I don't think every or even most conversions are going to have that kind of story, but mine does. And so I don't have any story of being called, quote, to the ministry. Yeah. It just all happened right then. I just mm. knew this is my life now. Mm. I mean, I knew that. And so, you know, the, what's kept me going is, well, this is my life. And yeah. I've never for a moment really considered doing anything else. I Notice when I say doing it, I hesitate on that because that yeah. makes it sound like it is a job or a vocation or a career that I chose. It's not what it was. It, it chose me. Hmm. And so it's who I am. So what keeps me going is because there's nothing else to do. I mean, <laughs> I mean that it's who I am. So whether it's yeah. easy or hard, enjoyable or or unenjoyable, it, mm. that's really, in one sense, irrelevant because it's just who I am. Mm. That, that may be an untypical answer, but that's the truth. No, it's a, it's a good answer. And I think that, especially in, the, in America, where we are, we're both in, in the United States, uh, we have such a performance-orientated culture where you are defined by, by your job or your vocation or what you do. Um, but you're you're talking about identity that's deeper than uh, your yeah. your vocation. Um, you know what's the importance of our 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 identity as children of God of being found in Him? Yeah, um, I really have lived a life where it's kind of all one thing. Now this could be misunderstood. It could be misconstrued. Um, I'm not, I mean, of course, you know, I'm a father. Now I'm a grandfather. I'm a husband. My middle son, Aaron, was just, he just left here moments ago. And my grandchildren, eight of them, all just live within a mile of me. So that's, mm. but I don't really compartmentalize. Uh, I mean, I'm all of those things, yeah. but also I have this call to do what I can to help advance the kingdom of Christ. And I just do it in the context of a life. Sometimes I'm writing, sometimes I'm preaching, sometimes yeah. I'm watching Chiefs football with my <laughs> grandsons, you know, or it, but it's just all sort of one thing. I forgot what the question was, though. Um, yeah, found in, in identity. The, the, yeah, I think that uh, well, the differences between actually found in what you do and found in who you are as, as a child of God. Yeah, I mean, I am one who has been redeemed by Christ, and Christ is my all in all. And that sounds, I know that sounds hopelessly cliche, <laughs> uh, but it's really true. And so whatever it is I'm doing, it's all in the context that I belong to Christ, hmm. that, that I am simultaneously his slave, but he's also my friend. Uh, he's my Lord, but he's also the one that you know, is, is, uh, the one that I sit with in peace every day when I yeah. pray. And so I, I, I don't really, I don't really know how to answer all of these kinds of <laughs> types of questions because I, I think to me, I just don't think about it in terms of 
compartmentalizing. There's yeah. this there. I, I know other, I know others do perhaps, but it just has never been that way for mm-hmm. me. Um, so. I just th- I think that's such a helpful uh, stance to take of non-compartmentalizing your your life. It is all uh, it's all life in him as you're walking forward. And I think that's yeah. really important. I mean, there, there's other way. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we might uh, fulfill a particular calling or whatever. I mean. I've been the pastor of one church for 40 years. That's just the way it's worked out for me. But if you ask me what keeps me in the ministry, it's almost, I know this sounds like a snarky response and I'm not trying to be, (laughs) but it's almost like asking me, why do you keep being Brian Zond? (laughs) I I don't have, I can't be anybody else. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I, I suppose there'll come a day when I'm not, preaching as much and maybe a day when I'm not preaching at all. Yeah. Uh, there'll come a day when I've written my last book and I'm done writing. I understand those things will come, um, but that that's just a different stage in in my life that I've lived in Christ. You know, mm. the, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ and we are raised with Christ. Um, so I, that's, that's, that's actually real to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just uh, you, you wrote when everything's on fire. Um, and I think it's a really uh, important book in the last few years, uh, as it seems like everything is on fire in the church at the moment. Uh, people are talking about deconstruction. They're yeah. talking about all sorts of things that are, you know, walking away from the church or this or that. Um, what's in in that book, which which I love, um, what for you do you think is is the thing that people can hold on to their faith when everything is on fire? Well, it's kind of what we've already been talking about, and that is the absolute centrality of the person, our risen Lord Jesus Christ that there is no other foundation. Our foundation is not denominational affiliation. Our foundation is not, uh, our our foundation is not even the Bible. Uh, Although the Bible is a wonderful gift and it it aids us in that, but our foundation is the revelation Mm -hmm. that Jesus is the Christ. And as we enter a time of well, the, yes, the term has become deconstruction. Maybe we'll circle back to that in a moment about yeah. why that term may or may not be apropos. But as we enter that time, I think people just really need to hold on to everything but Jesus loosely. Mm. And everything else is negotiable. Mm. I mean, if, of yeah. course, who am I to say? I mean, maybe even how maybe Jesus is negotiable for you, but I, w- I would try to maybe pare down, downsize a little bit and say, okay, I don't have to fight for every particular mm. facet of yeah. the Christian faith or every. What, what happens in some forms of fundamentalism is that everything gets bundled together yep. so tightly. That if you that that if somehow if if they can't hold on to new aid new earth creationism, then like that they're done with Christianity. That's a problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, many of these things can be held on to loosely, set aside for a time, maybe revisited, maybe jettisoned. Uh, but try to stay focused on the one that hopefully is is why you became a Christian in the first place. Yeah. Because as I said, you became fascinated with Jesus Christ. Maybe stay there. And so sometimes I tell people, you know, if uh, sometimes for maybe a season, just read the Gospels if you're going to yeah. read the Bible. Or, or maybe maybe just the Gospel of John. Just, okay, I'm just going to reduce my Bible from 66 books down to one for a season. Yeah. And just stay with Jesus in the Gospels or maybe one Gospel. Hmm. I, I think that's, I mean, that's great. To hold on to Jesus. Jesus is our anchor in the midst of, uh, of all of that. What is that helpful term or... You know, as people yeah. are thinking about what to hold on to, what's helpful as we're walking through this season of of the church? Uh, deconstruction has become the the term that is used. It's in vogue. I don't, I'm not right. sure how that happened. Uh, originally, deconstruction is a philosophy, philosophical term given to us primarily from Jacques Derrida, a 20th century French philosopher, who the way he uses it is an application to texts, Mm. that texts never reach a final interpretation. Mm. Uh, Derrida was primarily a philosopher of language. And Derrida resists that the idea that a text has any final fixed meaning because words are signs pointing to science. We don't need to get on into all of what Derrida is doing there. Um, perhaps that is a term that might be describing what, what Christians are going through right now. I don't know that's the best term for if for no other reason than I don't, I think most people aren't familiar with Derrida and they're not yeah. really using that term that way. And deconstruction sounds a whole lot like destruction. Right. And then they begin to have something that has scandalized them, that has offended them, that has caused them maybe to stumble in regard to the Christian faith. And they have this very almost angry reaction of, oh, let's just burn it all down. Let's just get right. rid of it. So I think there's just better ways of approaching this. Uh, and I say this as one who in midlife, very publicly, went through a very significant overhaul of my theology. Mm. You know, I, I, told, yeah. I, told, I just told a little bit of the story about encountering yeah. Christ as a teenager. I was leading a ministry by the time I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I mean, I was. Yeah. And that, that became Word of Life Church by the time I was 22, that I've mm. led this church for 40 years. Uh, but what I didn't tell you is that... Um, beginning in my 40s, I began to have a growing sense of unease. Hmm. And for me, it wasn't a crisis of faith regarding Jesus Christ himself. I mean, some do, I get that, but that wasn't my experience. What I was experiencing was I had reached the point where I was convinced that Jesus deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Yeah, And so I began to be quite disillusioned by what I might now call Christianity American style. I found it too consumerist, too accommodated to American culture, too politicized, too shallow, too thin. Yeah. And this created a crisis because I was a pastor. Yeah. Preaching numerous times a week. And yet the Christianity that I knew 
which would be how I would think about God revealed in Christ and how I would preach, I was finding uh, no longer tenable. Yeah. So, and there was, I didn't have much option. I mean, I could keep it under wraps for a while, but eventually as I finally began to experience some breakthroughs and began to really find what I would describe as the, the true theological treasures Mm. of the church that I just largely been unaware of. Yeah. So I was kind of stuck in my own little, you know, charismatic cul-de-sac, <laughs> not really able to access the great valued treasures of the church. Mm-hmm. And once I got out of that cul-de-sac and began to find what I lo- was looking for, it changed me. It changed my preaching. And then this became public and this became something of an issue. Uh, and and the, the pain came when people didn't understand what I was doing. Yeah. Didn't like me pulling them, uh, the church away from an Americanized version of the right. gospel try, in faithfulness yeah. to Christ. And, and people began to leave. A lot of people began to leave. And that was ooh, that was a hard time. It was mm-hmm. it was a strange time, Joshua, because yeah. on the one hand, I was more excited about being a Christian than I'd ever been in my life. Yeah. And I was just thrilled at these discoveries I was making. Mm. And at the same time, I was experiencing the deep pain of real rejection. Mm. I, you know, and I describe it in a book that's kind of like a memoir, at least partly it is, that I call Water to Wine, which is probably, yeah. you know, that's a good metaphor. I like that one. Yeah. That that my watery, thin, mm. weak Christianity, Jesus shows up at the party. Yeah. I thought maybe the party was starting to wind down, but Jesus did the miracle and turned the water to wine. So I like that metaphor. Yeah. I like a metaphor of, you know, discovering an ancient icon that has been lost in some monastery. It has the image of Christ upon it, but now the image has almost been completely obliterated because of a patina of grime and soot and incense smoke and all of that. Yeah. And so what do you do? Well, you don't throw it away. You restore it. And how do you restore it? Well, however it's restored, when the restoration artist shows up, I'm sure that I'm sure that the kit doesn't include a sledgehammer and dynamite. (laughs) We're we're dealing with something that is precious here. Mm, So, yes. yes, yes. In the name of Jesus, let's renovate. Let's rethink. Let's reevaluate. But let's do so carefully. And understand that what we're trying to do is actually remove all that sediment, all that ash, yeah. all that dirt, all that grime that isn't part of the picture to begin with. Yes. So you can do that without rejecting Jesus himself. Mm. Uh, so deconstruction, okay, uh, we're not going to change it. That That is settled in as the term. So that's yeah. going to be the term. Uh, but let's let's be careful how we use that term and what we mean. Yeah. And I also want to say though, I, I would never be the kind, never, never would be the kind of person that would see someone entering deconstruction and say, "Well, don't do that." Well, no, <laughs> I, I mean, I had my own experience yep. with that. No one was calling it deconstruction back then. This yeah. this was happening in two thousand, from like about two thousand to about two thousand eight. You know, yeah. the, the the first part of the twenty first century. No one was calling it deconstruction then. Hmm. And uh, but it was it was a real experience for me. So I, I if people are entering into deconstruction, it's almost always because they have no choice. Yeah. That they've encountered a contradiction, a problem, an offense, yeah. and it has to be addressed. 
Hmm. So for pastors to be threatened by church members entering a period of deconstruction and just, you know, sort of scolding hmm. them, telling them to stop it, that is, that's the, like the worst thing to yeah. do. You, you can't do that. And so I wrote the book actually to help people through that process. Yeah, that's good. So how do, how do we, how, you know, from you, your experience and what you did, how do we sift out and do a sifting process of what is uh, central, which is Jesus yeah. himself, um, and then what is external that can be burned or tossed aside so that we can restore what's Jesus is supposed to look like as and us as the body of Christ, the embodiment of Jesus, what we should look like as the church. Yeah, the, the question I think is you almost frame the question as the end goal, and then how do we get there? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that there's any one way. Mm. I think what you have to do, though, is probably one of the more helpful things. Let me back up. If people are entering a period where the faith they have known is no longer credible, sustainable, tenable, hmm. then what you need to do is probably widen your horizons and begin to understand that the, your particular experience of Christianity hmm. within a particular strain, expression, tradition, yeah denomination church does not represent remotely the entire history and ecumenical scope of the body of Christ. Yeah. So you may, you may need to widen mm. and, and begin to, and I, there isn't any one set way of how to do this, Yeah, but it, it may mean that you're, you are coming to the end and I'm, look, I'm, I'm the kind of, I've been in one church for 40 years. Yes, <laughs> I am the pastor, but still, you know, yeah. pastors don't stay in one church for 40 years, oh, but yeah. I have. And I am certainly, I'm the last guy in the world that's going to counsel what you would call maybe, you know, church hopping, shopping, or any of that consumerist approach. But maybe there is a time where it's like, I don't know that I can sustain my Christian faith in this context. Well, there are other contexts. Yeah. And see, what's happened is I have seen people um, for whom a fundamentalist version of Christianity can no longer be sustained. Yeah. And what they end up doing, though, is getting rid of Christianity, but remaining a fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. I mean, I'm talking yeah. about what I've seen. Yeah. We're, we're all in a matter of weeks. Mm. In a matter of weeks, they go wow. from being a fundamentalist Christian to a fundamentalist atheist. The real problem is they're still a fundamentalist. Yeah. And so maybe explore some other, you know, look into orthodoxy and Catholicism and Anglicanism, mainline Protestantism yeah. or whatever, something that's outside of what you have experienced thus far. That's mm. a little bit of counsel. That's not, that's not a pan, panacea. That's not a complete solution. But I think that's rather than just walk away from Christian faith yeah. altogether, perhaps become aware of other expressions of the Christian faith that are yeah. probably actually being practiced all around you. If you just, you know, take 10 minutes to go look for them. Yeah. You know, as you uh, wrote in Sinners in the Hands of, of a Loving God, which uh, which I love, is you, you talk about what Jesus did in, in Luke 4 as he read Isaiah 61, and and he, he read out Isaiah 61 and stopped before, it says, the day of vengeance yeah, of God. Yeah, he edited the text. And he edited the text, and he rolled up the scroll. Um, and 
you know, then he he goes about and he he talks about really the, this favor of the Lord is for all all people, and he you know he's talking about uh, Syrians and and people in Tyre and and mm-hmm. all these other other people that are not just the Jews, and the Jews were got angry. My question is, I've always found it kind of fascinating that the the just the unbelievable mercy of God is mm. so untenable for people. They get so angry at the mercy of God. <laughs> Why do you think that people get angry at the mercy of God? Uh, and how, because it, to me, it's just the most beautiful thing that I've, I have found and I've seen, but people are so angry about it. <laughs> well, yeah. And if you continue with the story where Jesus has come home to his his hometown. Yeah. It's the first time he's returned after really beginning his public ministry. And he is asked to read the scripture and remark upon it. And he, he finds that passage in Isaiah 61, which ends like this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Yeah. But he leaves that last clause out. He just says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And rolls it up, sits down, and begins. And and then and then he goes and he chooses these two stories out of first and second Kings, which are very subtle stories. Yeah. They what they are, they're written by a Jewish writer for a Jewish audience, but the central character in these two stories are Gentiles. The first is the widow of Zarephath, yeah. whom you know, receives provision through the prophet Elijah. And the way the story is told, you're happy for this widow. You know, a, a Jewish audience might go, eh, I don't know if I like all the Gentiles, but you know, she's a harmless widow. Why not? Yeah. But then the second story is a little bit more, pushes it quite a bit. And this time the central figure is not a helpless Gentile widow, but Naaman, the general of the Syrian army, which was a very present threat to Israel at that time. And he and he's healed. Now, that's as far as the story goes in those texts. There's no commentary on it. The story is just told. Yeah. Jesus then, what is implicit in First and Second Kings in his sermon in Nazareth, he makes explicit, and he simply says there were many widows, you know, in Israel mm-hmm. in the days of Elisha, and none of them were provided for except for this. Syrophoenician woman. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, and none of them were healed except for the Syrian Naaman. So what was only implicit in the Old Testament, Jesus now makes explicit. And what is the result? Did they get the point that he was making that God's that God has favor? It is, it is the season, the time, the year of the Lord's favor, but it's for everyone. Yeah, yeah Jubilee is being announced, but it's not just for a few. Well, their reaction was they became quite angry and tried to throw him off a cliff. Yep. Why this is, I think that would be a that might be on be beyond my scope to fully analyze that, mm-hmm. but I know it's true. I know that people can become very angry if you take away their religion of revenge. Part of the reason is it's how we mostly unite. Mm-hmm. We mostly unite as a community by a common enemy by a common hatred. It's very effective. It really works. Yeah. Uh, if if we t- 
take our anxiety, our rage, our insecurity that we all carry around within us, pull it together, and then project it upon some other them. Mm. Uh, that is, it is actually very cathartic, mm. and it produces a sense of belonging and unity and peace. The only problem is that it's actually satanic. (laughs) You know, it's so Jesus is not going to allow us to achieve unity through the demonic means of scapegoating. We're going to actually have to learn how to love, Mm. to love even enemy. Mm. And Jesus will be patient. Jesus will teach us. But if we're unwilling and we want to just throw Jesus off a cliff, well, what happens? Jesus Mm. passes through their midst and he never comes back. Mm. Yeah. So, um, if we seek to achieve our belonging within a community by sharing a common hatred, Jesus mm. will not help us with that. And we're yeah. still lost and we're still bound yeah. by the devil. And so Jesus is going to have, you know, I mean, we're just going to have to be willing to trust Jesus mm. that when he says, love your enemies, that, that we're supposed to, and that Jesus understands that it's hard, it's difficult, but that if we will stay with Jesus, he will help us and show us how to do it. Mm. That's good. So how do we do that? You know, in this uh, this day and age of polarization, even within the church in America, where people are forming bands of, they yeah. call it unity, that is against another, but it's actually just uniformity, where they they have a little echo chamber in one area. Um how do we actually get to this place of coming together and saying, hey, we're going to love one another and move forward together and not be in different factions, um, but we could actually be unified as the body of Christ? We begin by taking Jesus and especially the Sermon on the Mount seriously. And not just the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm thinking all through the epistles, there is this the primacy of love. And we could say it this way. The biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. And the biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. And so at least we just have to recognize this is the case. And I think think just awareness is a place to begin, that if we are achieving our unity, our sense of belonging by hating, by, by sharing within our community a common hatred. We, we hate the liberals. We hate the right. Republicans. We hate the gays. We hate the right. capitalists or whatever. You know, yeah. if that's how we are. And of course, this is ancient. This, this, is, this is the scapegoating yeah. mechanism, and it works. But we have to, it needs to be exposed as diabolical, satanic, evil, yeah. and then say, okay, I, I just, I'm not going to be that, person. Now, it may mean, of course, hmm. see, it, it's, it's, it's the phenomenon of a stoning. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the one, of, one of the prescribed ways, even in the Old Testament, of a communal execution is by stoning, mm-hmm. right? Now, stoning isn't the most effective way to execute someone quicker to you know hang them or throw yeah. them off a cliff or cut them down with a sword but stoning has this advantage in that it allows everyone to participate hmm. and it allows everyone to exonerate themselves everyone hmm. participates 
And then yeah. everyone can say, ah, it wasn't me. I just threw one stone. Hmm. So that that's okay. So there's this moment when there's the woman caught in adultery. Yeah. Brought to Jesus. And they say, this woman was caught in adultery. Moses in the law says we should stone such women. What do you say? And this yeah. is a trap for Jesus. Uh, because either Jesus says, okay, if, it, if Jesus just go, ex, accepts this binary option that they're presenting, either he says, all right, that's what the Bible says, stone her, and this completely repudiates everything that Jesus has been teaching, yeah. or he says, no, um, uh, we're not going to do that. The Bible's wrong. He, he, he doesn't come at it that directly. What he does is he breaks the spell by saying, all right, but... Let the one, the individuals, he's, he, mm. he's breaking that spell of, of mob violence. Let the mm. one who is without sin, he's calling them to act individually and be responsible for their individual acts in the context of self-reflection. Yeah. Let the one, the individual who is without sin, cast the first stone. So it's yeah. not just a group action. It's yeah. not just mob violence. You have to be responsible mm. in self-reflect, first self-reflect, and then if you think you are innocent enough, then you throw the stone. And it, and it breaks that spell. But then we have to decide whether we're really, that's, that's the beginning of John 8. Then as you continue through John 8, you reach a moment where you have these would-be disciples. These are some Judeans who are, because Jesus' ministry has been in Galilee, but he's arrived there in Jerusalem, and they are aspiring to be his disciples, but they have a certain idea of what Jesus must be. And Jesus begins to say, but you know, in the end, you're going to seek to kill me. And he begins to say, you're still connected too much with your father, who is the devil. That is the accuser. That's what, yeah. that's what diabolos in, in uh, Greek, which is about like, like, like Spanish or Hasatan, the Satan in Hebrew, yeah. it means the accuser. You're still belonging to him. And they said, what do you mean? Uh, the devil's not our father. Abraham's our father. He says, no, if you were of your father, Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. And what did Abraham? Well, Abraham did lots of things, but what did he do in connection with killing? Mm. Well, he didn't sacrifice Isaac. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we read this very archaically and we say, oh, you know, how how could a father sacrifice a son? Well, no, in the ancient Near East, especially in the Canaanite religions, this was typical. The firstborn would be sacrificed to, to you know, ensure further uh, fertility. But Abraham begins to perceive, no, if Abraham is the father of monotheism, he's the also, mm. also the father of the abolition of sacrifice, human sacrifice. Mm. And so he he puts down the knife and he doesn't do that, but mm. they're still caught up in a sacrificial system where yeah. someone has to be blamed, where, where someone has to be recriminated, where someone has to be sacrificed, whether mm. literally or metaphorically. And that's why they can't be Jesus disciples. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, what are they doing? They're trying to stone Jesus. Yeah. They start off with, they wanted to stone <laughs> the woman. And then by, and, and then that, that is halted, that there's an intervention that Jesus stages, and it doesn't happen. It's an aborted stoning. Mm. But by the time you get to the end of the chapter, they're wanting to stone Jesus. Mm. And so we're, we have to, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to be disciples on his terms. And his terms require that we let go of the idea that we're going to go through life blaming and accusing mm. and sacrificing. Uh, yeah. That that, in fact, Jesus just says that's that's from the satan he was a murderer 
yeah. from the beginning, and he's a liar, and we're not going to go that way. Mm. So Jesus, he became, Jesus, in fact, is the scapegoat that is in, that is in truth the Lamb of God. Mm. That in Christ we see the entire, we see the innocence of Jesus. Yeah. So the innocence of Jesus when he's scapegoated reveals the relative innocence of all scapegoats. That that's not mm. really they're not really responsible for what we are accusing them of. That comes from a lie. And so yeah. those, these kinds of things have to be perceived. And then we need to belong to a community of people that value love above all things, that, mm. that how we love is the revelation of yeah. how truthfully we are followers of Jesus. Yeah. And so we've got to find those kind of communities. Yeah. And, I, and I understand it's very difficult in America right now. I'm pretty concerned. I, I, I see us hurtling towards uh, a point of no return as a nation mm. where eventually this begins to break down into mm. all kinds of violence. Yeah, uh, it won't it won't be, you know, 1860 Civil War with, you know, states because it, the, the whole red and blue phenomenon is spread. I mean, there's some are more so and less so, but yeah. I could see this spiraling into just sort of, you know, guerrilla warfare and mm -hmm. terrorism one against another. And so the church desperately needs to embody something other. That yeah. we are the community of radical love, yeah. renouncing violence, that the kingdom of God is without coercion. As followers of mm. Christ, we persuade by love, witness, reason, yeah. rhetoric, spirit, if need be, martyrdom, but never by force. Yeah. But we've been so seduced by Caesar's sword, by political yeah. power, by the ring of power. Yeah. And we think that we can wield the ring of power and mm. not be corrupted by it. Tolkien tells us, no, you're wrong. It will corrupt everyone. It just simply yeah. must be renounced. Mm. And so I, I might be a voice crying in the wilderness, but there's others. Yeah. And, and the church is going to have to, well, people are going to have to find churches that have some kind of message like that. If they are simply taking up side in America's culture wars, which has been kind of a cold war that could turn into various forms of an yeah. actual hot war, uh, then the church has become, it's lost its salt, it's lost its savor, and it's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. Mm -hmm. So I would say find the churches that prioritize discipleship in the form not of who they hate, but how they love. Mm. Man, that was a long That rant. was long, but it was so good. It was a long rant. It was a, a needed and necessary rant to go after radical love and what radical love looks like. You know, in First John 4, uh, it says that God is love, and there yes. is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, and fear is for punishment. Um, that that brings me to to a question: If perfect love drives out fear, what is um, then? When people talk about the fear of the Lord, what mm -hmm. what is the distinction there? The fear right. of the Lord um, with when perfect love is the thing that casts out fear, and God is love. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. That's mm. the language scripture uses. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the mm, beginning yeah. of knowledge. I would describe it like this. Um, recognizing uh, the, the fear of the Lord in one sense is beginning to take God seriously. Mm. That we recognize that we live in a universe created by a God of love. Yeah. And that God creates simply out of his gratuitous love. I mean, God creates for no other reason than for love. Yeah. And, this, and this establishes a grain 
within the universe, the, the grain of love. Yeah. Now, we live in a fallen world, and, and, it's, and all kinds of things can happen. I understand that. But if we go with the grain of love, it tends towards well-being. In other words, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love yeah. our neighbor as ourselves, it tends towards the well-being of our soul. Mm. If we say, no, I don't want to love God with all my heart. I want to love whatever, sex, drugs, and rock and roll with all my yeah. heart or whatever, whatever it is, whatever, whatever idol people yeah. choose. And, and I don't really want to love my neighbor as myself. I kind of want to pick and choose who mm. I love, mostly myself, and use my neighbor to get ahead. That means we begin to move against the grain of the universe. Yeah. And we begin to suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering. Hmm. Now, you can call that the wrath of God, if you like. The Bible does, but it's a metaphor. Hmm. It's not retributive. It's not vengeful, but it is consequential. Hmm. So that when we recognize that going a different way yeah. than the way of love, love of God and love of neighbor is harmful, and that we really ultimately won't get away with anything, hmm. we will eventually pay the price. That's the fear of the Lord. That's hmm. recognizing, okay, God has... Well, I don't know how many people will see this and how many people just hear it, but maybe you can see over my shoulder there's a uh, there's a wood burning stove back there, which I just I just dearly love my my little wood <laughs> stove. Uh, we're all, we're past the season of using that, but I'd love it when fall rolls around and I can yeah. fire that baby up. And as I said, I think maybe before we started recording, I can't remember, maybe we were recording that uh, I have eight grandchildren, eleven and under. And they all live a mile from me, so they come over regularly. And uh, let's say I'm down here, and I've got the I've got the wood burning stove going. And as Papa, that's what they call me. Uh, if, if I issue a law, I, I, I climb up on Mount Sinai and I say to my eight grandchildren, "Thou shalt not touch the stove." Okay, where does that law come from? It comes from love, right? Yeah. The wood burning mm -hmm. stove is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's yeah. a good thing, but. You have to relate to it properly or it will burn you. Hmm. Okay, let's say one of them, let's say one of them is three years old and and, uh, and doesn't obey the law of Papa and touches the stone and they're burned. Now, if, they're, if they are a poor theologian, <laughs> they might reason thus. I have violated the sovereignty of my Papa, hmm. and in his wrath, he has hmm. burned my hand. Of course, none of that's true. What yeah. the only thing that's true is that their hand has been burned. Yeah, but but there's but but Papa isn't wrathful. Hmm. He's not angry. Yeah, he doesn't want to hurt. And the whole reason of the law was for well-being. When hmm. the law was violated, the consequence wasn't my hmm. wrath. The yeah. consequence was the consequence. That is just <laughs> the way the universe is arranged. That there you burn logs and it puts off heat and it and it's good. Yeah, but you still have to write, write to it properly. So, the fear of the Lord mm. is the beginning to recognize that that there is a design to God's creation, and we have yeah. to relate to it properly, or we will harm ourselves. That's mm. the fear of the Lord. Now, initially, okay. you may think wrong about it. You may think it's kind of just a one to one. I broke the law, and now there's retribution. But it's it's not that way. Mm. Uh, but as we grow. And as we move further and further into the mm. revelation of God, who is Jesus Christ, yeah. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus mm. alone is the perfect revelation of who God is. Mm. We eventually arrive at the place where we understand God 
is love and God is light. And in God, there is no darkness at all. There's no anger, wrath, violence, retribution in God, but it may be a journey to get there. I was in the, I was in the office of a new Testament professor at Eastern university. And he had a, uh, not Eastern university, Southeastern university. It's a Pentecostal college in Florida. I think that's, that's the name of it. Yeah. Robbie Waddell is who it is, who I just ran into in Jerusalem Hmm. last month, just accidentally. (laughs) It was kind of fun, but, um, he had a, he had a, uh, icon of St. Anthony, the great. And most of these icons, you know, they'll they'll often, you'll see these, you know, the saints with their long beards and, and they'll often have a scroll that will have, you know, one of their famous sayings, mm-hmm. often in Greek, you know, but this one yeah. was in English, so I could easily read it. And there's there's St. Anthony the Great, kind of the, the father of Eastern monasticism, the great desert father, and his long beard, and he's got his scroll, and it said, I no longer fear God. I love God. Mm. And perfect love casts out all fear. Hmm. but but that is a journey i think yeah. for most yeah and so so be it let it let it be a journey yeah but but uh, i mean if you if you ask me brian are you afraid of god i would say i, I I'm, af- I'm afraid i can't be <laughs> <laughs> i i've arrived at the point where i know that god's only intention toward me is good yeah and so I'm not afraid of God. Now, I am afraid of the consequence of my own sin. Yeah. I am afraid of those sorts of things. But uh, God? No, God has unwavering, unchanging, unconditional love towards me. I'm mm. convinced of that. And mm. so I don't fear God in that sense. Mm. I think that's so beautiful and helpful as we go through that journey to get to that place where you know I no longer fear God. But I love God, um, and uh, that that love and the journey towards love uh, is something I think we all need to take. That we need to fight for radical love um, yes. and just be engaged in radical love in mm-hmm. all all areas. That you know, you know, one of the things you did say in "Sinners in the Hands of Loving God." I mean, I think you. You quoted Dostoevsky about. Uh, I, I quote Dostoevsky in all of my and books. everything. I mean, <laughs> and I, yes. I don't do it on purpose. I just can't help it. He <laughs> because influences he, me so much. Yeah, he's good, but it says you know. I think one of the things he talked about is hell, is the inability to love other people, and yeah. I think that you know going through that in life, if we can't love other people, and if I mean we're going to be going through hell. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, that's so I, true. that's. That's in Brothers Karamazov, and that's through his. I mean, if you ask me, who's your the, your favorite theologian? I might I might at any given day say my favorite theologian is Elder Zosima, who in fact yeah. is a fictional character yeah. <laughs> that that was invented by Dostoevsky, and yet everything that Zosima says is so good. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have a couple of questions uh, here at the end. One, if you could go back. Uh, to your 21-year-old self, uh, what advice would you give? I have, a, I have a ready answer for that because this is a popular podcast yeah. question, but I know what it is. Um, if 
BZ at 63 would go back to my 21, which is, you know, I'm 21 for the third time is what I am. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I could say 63, but I'm saying I'm 21 for the third time. <laughs> There's not much I could say. I mean, 21-year-old BZ has to learn what he's going to have to learn. Yeah. And I could try, like, if I tried to sit down with my 21-year-old self and tried to, however so we have a half hour, an hour, two hours, yeah. five hours for me to tell my 21 year old self what I know today. He, he, he couldn't hear it. Hmm. He wouldn't believe it. <laughs> he would argue with me. And so there's no point in me telling me that. I mean, it's, it, there yeah. really is the truth that there's a journey. So here's what I would say. I would hmm. say this. Don't be afraid. That's, that's exactly what I would say. And this is, you know, every time an angel shows up, right, in Scripture, over yeah. and over and over and over, don't be afraid. Yeah. It's what heaven has to say to earth. Mm -hmm. We waste so much of our life being afraid, mm. mostly being afraid of things that never happen. Yeah. Sometimes the worst occurs. Sometimes bad things happen. Bad things will happen. But the grace is there to bear them. Mm. The anxiety about their the possibility of them occurring seems to be at times almost worse than the actual experience of it. Mm. And so uh, because Christ has said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age. We can bear all things with Christ. And so what I would say to my 21 year old self is don't be afraid. Mm. Just don't yeah. be afraid. Mm. Yeah. Anything that you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Uh, I just, <laughs> I'm going to sound like such a nerd here. <laughs> uh, yesterday, I just completed my fourth reading of the Lord of the Rings. Mm. I mean, that's a big, I read it in that's 2000 yeah. and then 2010 and then 2020. Mm. I thought, okay, I'll just read it every 20 years. And then I don't have this book in front of me. Then Fleming Rutledge. I don't know if anybody knows who she is. She is an Episcopal priest i mean she's based she's retired now but episcopal mm. priest preacher extraordinaire yeah uh, theologian writer mm. and we've struck up a friendship we've never met in person but i've endorsed her latest book and she gave a wonderful lovely endorsement of uh when everything's on fire and we've just main kind of maintained some correspondence she knew that i liked lord of the rings and she sent me her book uh, the Battle for Middle-Earth, which is more or less a 400-page commentary wow. <laughs> on the spiritual Christian themes that are found within Tolkien's Lord mm. of the Rings. And so I, I, I read that, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to go back and reread this again. And it's one of those books, it, I, it's not the greatest novel I've ever read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still say that's Brothers Karamazov, but it's the most enjoyable I've ever read. <laughs> and it's, I seem to enjoy it more and more, mm. um, you know, the older I get. And so I, I went through a, a phase over the last, oh, about a year and a half, two years, where I've been reading a whole lot of Sergei Bogolkakov. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a 20th century Russian Orthodox theologian mm -hmm. that did most of his work in Paris because he had to leave Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm -hmm. He's very dense, very difficult primary influence on David Bentley Hart. And so I've read most of his published works in English. I mean, yeah. a lot of his works aren't in English yet, but that was good. But then I just said, okay, I just want to take a break and read something that's 
that is not so demanding. <laughs> and, and, I've, and I've kept up with everything that David Bentley Hart, and he's published several books recently, Apocalypse and Tradition. And uh, what was the other one that was just, what was the other one that was just out? Anyway, I've been reading all of his stuff and it's always good. But, you know, after Bogolkov and, and David Bentley Hart, I wanted something that wasn't so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. that's that's. I know it, it just sounds so nerdy, but I don't, you know what? I don't, you care. don't care. I don't care. You don't, don't care. care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. I love Lord of the Rings. And, you know, I'm really excited that, uh, yeah, I, to eventually get my son into it maybe read it to my son as well um and you know we've, we've talked well, a lot well this this is how this came up with fleming rutledge is i had on twitter i'd said something about watching lord of the rings with my i think it was actually with finn who would probably was um, ages of grandchildren are a blur for me but <laughs> he would be i think he would be like nine and and Fleming saw that and she was like, no, you can't do that. They must read the books first. And she's right. Um, but, you know, it's also the age in which we live. And, yeah. and that led to this discussion. And then she's really making her case and then sent me this book. And yeah. <laughs> well, That's great. That's good. Well, Brian, it was a, just a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you um, really about the radical love and the beauty of Jesus that we have to engage in. Um, and that we have to fight for and get uh, the church to to really focus on and love others well. That we need to love God and we need to love our neighbor and love our Amen. enemies. So thank you so much. Uh, thank for this. you, Joshua. It's really good. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.